One of the most interesting aspects of the Bible <clears throat> as, a, as a holy book, a religious book, uh, is that it's full of messed up people. Uh, it's not a story of people who got everything right. Uh, more often than not, it's a story of people that hardly got anything right. This is especially true when it comes to families. Because we have this big book of messed up people, and those messed up people get married. And then they become messed up couples. And then those messed up couples have kids, and they become messed up couples with kids. And then the kids become messed up kids, and they grow up to be messed up adults in a cycle that keeps going, and it landed all of us here today in 2017. It's a bunch of probably messed up people, right? We, we all have those things in our life. Um, the Bible when it comes to family and parenting, is a really good handbook of what not to do. If you start reading the stories of the Bible, it's almost like it's one story after another of don't do what this family did and don't do what that family did and don't do what that dad did and don't do what that mom did and don't do what those kids did or what those grandkids did. I know that, especially in the New Testament and in the Proverbs maybe, the Bible gives us some really good positive instruction of, okay, do this mom and dad, do this parents, do this, do this dad, do this mom. But when you read the stories, like the actual characters, it's one messed up family after another. This is especially true of the first book of the Bible. The book of Genesis, which just means beginnings, it really is. One story after another of how parents blew it and how their kids blew it and what the consequences of all that was. If you're ever feeling bad about your parenting skills, just read the Bible. And you'll think, well, I'm not so bad after all. They're a lot worse than I am. I've never done that before. We're, we're going to read a specific story from the book of Genesis. It's, we're going to cover kind of Genesis 25 through 27. The story actually doesn't have resolution for about six more chap chapters. Well, what happens in chapters 25, 26, 27 has consequences for years and years and years, which is the way parenting is, right? You, you have this time with your kids, and, and then there are consequences for years and years and years of your parenting. It's one of the things that adds so much pressure to us as parents. Right? We feel this weight. We feel this stress in our life because we live with this awareness of, okay, what I'm doing for my kids, to my kids, with my kids, they're going to remember the rest of their lives. Like They're, they're going to go to therapy one day, and they're going to talk about me and what happened right here. And so we have this weight. We, we, we have this stress of this is going to have lasting effects on our kids. A popular topic, I think in every generation, but certainly in this generation, is kids these days. You ever find yourself saying, you sound like your parents when you say kids these days, or teenagers these days, or those millennials. We have all kinds of writings and studies and generational information about those millennials. And some of them have good content, but anytime I read one of those articles, or I see one of those posts, my initial thought is, yeah, but somebody raised those kids. Like, I, I mean, we're, we're dumping on teenagers these days. Somebody parented them. Right? So somebody, somebody raised them and they became the way that they are. I, it's not that I'm unconcerned with the generational level. It's not that I'm un, unconcerned with the cultural issues of 
teenagers these days. For me, I'm more concerned about the three teenagers that live in my house than all the teenagers in the world right now. Not that I'm unconcerned with them. There's some reason to study and some reason to, to be concerned. But my priority is what's happening in the lives of the three teenagers that live under my roof. The three kids that are growing up with my last name. And I would encourage you to take that approach as well. We could talk for days about the failings and shortcomings of kids these days, teenagers these days, millennials these days. But maybe our main concern ought to be the ones that live in our house or the ones that are in our family or, or the nephews and nieces that we have or the grandkids that we have. The story that I want to talk about uh, in Genesis is familiar to some of you. It's a story of twin boys named Jacob and Esau. Their parents are Isaac and Rebekah. And this is how the story starts in Genesis 25. When the time came for Rebekah to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. Now, if you have a footnote in your Bible, the footnote says Esau means hairy, which tells us that parents weren't real creative in naming kids back then, right? He comes out, he's hairy, and they go, let's call him Harry. Next kid. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Again, if you have a footnote in your Bible, it probably says Jacob means he who grasped the heel. We are not real creative in coming up with baby names. So we got Esau and Jacob, twin boys. The boys grew up, verse 27, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. And all, all that means, we could dig into all of its meaning, but all that means is they're different. They're twin boys, and they like different things. They... Uh, had different personalities, uh, they had different skills. As they grew older, they had different goals and dreams and direction. They were different. They grew up in the same house. There were twin boys, had the exact same parents, and they were very different. And any of you who have parented more than one child, you know exactly what that's like. Right? <laughs> same house, same parents, same discipline strategy. We tried to teach the same lessons, and they are completely different. That's exactly what's going on with Jacob and Esau. Twin boys, totally different. Uh, if I could step out of the story for just a second, uh, here's, here's the big theme that I'm going for today. It, it's the word agency. We're, we're driving toward the idea that we want to raise kids who have agency. Now, we don't always use this word in this way, by agency, I mean the ability to act independently and make free choices. We want to raise kids who are self-confident enough, independent enough, that they can not only make choices, but make wise choices, mature choices. And then on the back end of those choices, they can deal with the consequences of the choices they independently made. That's part of the goal of parenting, is I, I, I want to raise you up to be an independent thinker, self-confident, able to make your own choices. Hopefully they're wise choices. Hopefully they're mature choices. And then once you've made that choice, that you're able to manage, deal with, live with the consequences that come with those 
choices. Now, this is what happens in our story. Verse 28, Isaac, that's the dad, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. As we're thinking about raising kids with agency, independence, able to make choices and deal with the consequences, we have to support and encourage our child's unique giftedness and makeup, even if it's different from our own. This is a part of, of raising self-confident, mature, wise, independent, young adults eventually. It's, we have to champion their unique giftedness, and sometimes that's not going to be the same as ours. So sometimes their person, personality is going to be different from ours. Sometimes their direction, their goals, what they want in life is going to be different from mine. We, we read in the story of Jacob and Esau that Rebekah was most drawn to Jacob. He was most like her. Esau was most like his dad. And so the Bible phrases it as, Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, to be fair, the Bible doesn't say that Isaac loved Esau, but he didn't love Jacob. And it doesn't say that Rebekah loved Jacob, but she didn't love Esau, but it's there. There's, there's some favoritism that's going on that the Bible makes note of. And I think the reason it makes note of it is as a warning, as a way to say to parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and people who mentor younger uh, people to say, look, there are going to be some that are a lot like you, and there are going to be some that aren't like you. Be careful that you don't try to make all your kids just like you. You know that's not the goal. The goal of parenting is not so that our kids turn out just like us. Hopefully, they learn some values from us spiritually. Hopefully, we're directing them toward God, and, and their faith is similar to ours. But the goal of parenting is not to make carbon copies of you. The goal of parenting is to discover what is the unique giftedness of my child. As they begin, as personality begins to come out, as giftedness starts to come out, to say, God, you created this person. I didn't create them. You created this person. You created my child with a unique imprint, personality, giftedness, uh, uh, the way they sense encouragement, the, what makes them feel loved, all of those things, they're unique. My job is not to turn them into me. My job is to help bring out what you've already put in them. The, the gifts and the direction that you've put in them, I want to discover that. Now, that means, mom and dad, we have to become students of our kids. We have to ask ourselves, who is the child that God has given me? What is he like? What is she like? What do they most want? And certainly I think early on in parenting, we teach from what we know. We model from what we know. And so we teach them the way we were taught. We encourage them in the direction that, that our experience was. But as they begin to grow and as their unique personality begins to come out, I have to ask God, what do you want for this child? Not, not what do I want them to be, how did you create them to be, and how do I work in harmony with what you've already put inside of them? It can be difficult when they're not like me, when they don't have personality like mine, or, or they don't enjoy the things that I enjoy, but let's be honest, 
It can be difficult when they're exactly like me too. Anybody ever have that problem? Like you hear yourself coming out of their voice and it annoys you every time, right? Like sometimes when they're exactly like you, it's hard as well. Neither one of these are easy. But part of the reason we have this story, I think, is for God to say, look, your child's not exactly like you. They're not exactly like anybody else's child. You need to love them and you need to be a student. You need to discover them and how you can encourage the person that I've created them to be. Another thing, early on in our parenting, it's great to, to accept this, to get to this place. And that is, teach your children that they are part of, not the center of the family. If I want to produce in my parenting an independent, thoughtful, wise human being that's able to accept their consequences, one of the things that they've got to learn is I'm not the only one on the planet. and I'm not even the only one in this family. Remember when the first one came along, those of you who've had kids, when the first one comes along, like everybody's hovering, right? Like everybody's all about ooing and aahing and I want to hold and I want to touch and I want to kiss and look and then now we're Instagramming and look, it's the center of the universe and you get them home and like every five minutes you're checking to make sure they're still breathing, right? You put the little mirror up to their nose and see if it fogs up and you're anxious about everything, and by the third one, you're like, okay, they'll go, go to sleep eventually. I'm just going to stay in bed. But with that first one, it's like this hovering that takes place, which is normal and natural. But there has to be early on this commitment to teaching this little human that, yes, you're loved and you're valued. But guess what? There are other people in the family that are loved and valued too. Like your opinion matters, but you know what? Yours isn't the only one that matters. You're a part of the family. You're not the center of the family. Family is really the place that kids should learn for the first time that we is greater than me. We, we are a family and, and we all have feelings, not just you and your siblings have feelings and your parents have feelings and your opinion matters, but everybody else's opinion matters too. We is greater than me in this family. And, and, and I know there's the, the other extreme as well that deserves a mention, and that's that there, there are kids that are neglected. I mean, there, there are kids that live in homes, maybe not, not the extreme even of physical neglect, but emotional neglect. Mom and dad, mom or dad are, are so focused on career, or they're so focused on themselves, or they're so focused on their next marriage, or the marriage after that, or this relationship, or that, or whatever, that the kids kind of get the leftovers, that's a reality, that's a, that's a problem, but I, there's also the issue of kids growing up thinking that they're the sun around which all the planets orbit. I mean, we, we have homes like that. We have homes where the kid grows up thinking, well, I'm the center of everything. And, and here's the problem. They're going to move out of your house and they're not going to be the center of everything anymore. When they go to college and they have roommates, the roommates are not going to think, oh, you're the sun and we revolve around you and it's all about what you want. They're going to get a job one day and their boss is not going to go just whenever you want to come in, just whenever you feel like it. You know, we're here for you. We want to meet your emotional needs. 
Uh, you, you, need, you need a, a mental health day? Sure. When, just whenever. You don't even have to call. Just don't show up. It's all about you. Look, they're, they're going to live in a world where they're not the center of the universe. And it's part of our role as parents. Not to demean them. Not to neglect them. But to say, look, you're, you're, you're valuable and you're important. But you live with a bunch of valuable, important people. You're, you're a part of we... And we is greater than me. The story continues. Chapter 27, verse 1. When Isaac the father was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so he may give you his blessing before he dies. So if you're following what's going on here, uh, Isaac is about to have a very meaningful moment with his oldest son. Esau's born first. Won't go into all the details of the blessing, but this is like a big moment between father and firstborn. And that's about to happen. Isaac's eyesight's not real great. His hearing's not real great. He's failing uh, physically. And so he says, look, I want to do this before I die. The mom, Rebecca, is outside and hears all of this. And she decides, well, I'm going to get that for my favorite son who's not really supposed to get it, but I want him to get it. And so she begins to put a plan in place to sort of slip one past Isaac and fool him in this who gets the blessing moment uh, between Isaac and Esau. Principle to remember, our kids aren't chess pieces, and if we treat them as such, we aren't doing them any favors. Our, our kids are not chess pieces to try to manipulate circumstances and situations, even if we think we're doing it for their good. Our kids are not chess pieces to play at school and travel ball team. and Certainly not at home. Certainly not between husband and wife. Mom and dad... One of the best pieces of advice that I can give to you in raising kids that are going to be independent and, and thoughtful and be able to make good decisions and, and be able to mature is that the two of you need to be on the same page. The two of you in your parenting, in your relationship to your kids, you, you need to be reading the same playbook. Right? You need to be a united front. And I'll line up some more analogies if you need me to do that. You two need to get on the same page. Decide how you're going to handle circumstances and situations. Decide how you're going to discipline. Decide how you're going to encourage. Decide when you're going to step in and when you're not going to step in. 
Mom and dad, one of the best things you can give to your kids is a strong marriage and a united front when it comes to parenting. And you'll have to discuss things behind the scene and you'll have to work things out and you'll have to have hard conversations when they're not in the room. But once they're in the room, mom and dad, you need to be on the same page. Uh, This is true if mom and dad are in the same home. This, This is also true if mom and dad aren't in the same home. Mom and dad are separated. Mom and dad are divorced. And I would not claim to understand the difficulty that that adds to to parenting. I I have no doubt that it does. I've not been down that road. But I, I can only imagine the difficulty that that adds to raising kids. But even in that circumstance, as much as you possibly can, mom and dad, you gotta speak with one voice. You gotta have a united front you got to make decisions, and then you got to parent together. Next principle. If we're going to raise children with agency, with the ability to make wise decisions, a goal of parenting, then, must be decreased interference in our children's lives as they get older. A continual decrease in interference in our child's life. Now, what I mean by interference is, There have to be fewer and fewer times where I insert myself into their life, into their decision-making, into their relationships. You do that early by necessity, right? There's a lot of interference early on. Otherwise, they don't eat, right? Like you have to interfere so that they get fed, so that they drink their bottles, so that they put clothes on, so that they brush their teeth, right? And some of us still have teenagers and we're trying to get them to brush your teeth. But you interfere a lot early on. But the pattern of parenting should be, I'm going to gradually decrease the amount of times that I step in and take over. It's not that I don't give advice. It's not that I don't encourage. It's not that I don't say, hey, you may want to think about this, or here's a suggestion. It's not not that I don't parent. It's that the older they get, there are fewer times that I step in and take over on their behalf. Obviously, in the story, Isaac's going to have this meaningful meeting with Esau, and Rebekah steps into everybody's life, but specifically into Jacob's life, and says, okay, this is what we're going to do. Right? You're going to go do this. I'm going to cook everything. I'm going to take care of everything for you. I'm going to get everything set up, and then you're just going to go in, and this is what you're going to say, and this is how you're going to respond. Rebekah just takes over takes over Jacob's life, takes over Jacob's direction, says, hey, I'm going to do it for you, and this is the way it's going to happen, which seems odd. What makes it really odd is at the end of chapter 26, we find out the boys are in their 40s at this point. Helicopter parenting is not new. Like we, did just, we didn't just invent this idea of parents getting way into their kids' lives for far too long. Apparently thousands of years ago, there was a 40-year-old boy and mom was still taking over. Parents, we have to gradually begin to step back. We have to gradually begin to turn over the reins and the decision-making to our kids We have to stop saying at some point, I'll go talk to the teacher for you. I'm going to handle this for you with the coach. 
I'm going to go talk to your college professor. I'm going to go on the job interview with you. (laughs) I wish I was making this up, right? We've all read the articles. This is what employers are experiencing these days. Employers are experiencing mom, dad coming to the interview with 25-year-old son, daughter. The goal of parenting is that I step back. And I begin to move them out front, move them forward to say, okay, this is your call. I'll support you. Here's, here's my input. Here's my advice. But this is your decision. You're going to have to make this. And, and I'm not going to run interference once you make it. I, again, I, I'm not saying that we don't give input. Even 40-somethings sometimes need mom and dad's input. And when it's asked for, we should continue to give advice and input. I'm talking about trying to live their lives for them. I'm talking about inserting myself into their life when it's time for them to start taking responsibility. A part of this, a part of this stepping back, part of this not inserting myself is an understanding as parents that no one experiences independence without experiencing consequences. You can't have one without the other. They can't grow into a mature adult if I protect them from all the consequences of the decisions that I'm asking them to make. If I run interference all the time, every time something doesn't go their way, if I step in and solve it, there's no way they can mature. You can't have maturity and not have decision-making that accepts the consequences of your own decision-making. Here's Rebecca. She's taking over. Jacob, we're going to do this. I'm going to cook. You're going to go in. You're going to say this. We're going to fool him. We're going to get back out. she got this whole plan. And Jacob says, Mom, this could go really badly. Like He could know. He could find out. And if we get discovered, Jacob's words are, a curse would fall on me. And Rebecca's, you can read the story, Rebecca's response is, I'll take the curse. I'll take all the consequences. It'll all be on me. You you won't have to experience any consequences. I'll take all the consequences. Which means Jacob doesn't get to grow up. Now, we're in a culture, helicopter parenting, millennials, teenagers, kids, we're in a culture where Parents like to step in and shield their kids from natural consequences of their decisions, which means kids don't grow up. Kids don't ever figure out that I need to make a good decision here because if it's not a good decision, there'll be consequences that follow. And if it is a good decision, there'll be good consequences that follow. They never put together their actions and decisions with their future because they know mom and dad always rescue me. Mom and dad always protect me. Mom and dad always keep the consequences from falling on me. That's what we see in Rebecca. I'll take the curse. I'll take the consequence. And then when everything does blow up, and it does blow up in the story, when everything blows up, Rebecca's answer is not, okay, we all need to sit down and we need to talk this out. Like, okay, we, we need to come clean and we need to clear the air. Rebecca's response is, Jacob, just run away. Just just run away so they can't find you. Even then, Rebecca's approach is, 
Avoid consequences. Avoid consequences. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to get you out of this. I'm not going to let you experience the consequences for what happened. We can't raise independent, wise kids who are characterized by agency. They can make decisions. They understand consequences that go with those decisions if we never allow our kids to experience consequences. If they binge watch Netflix until 3 in the morning and choose not to study, I can't step in and rescue them from the failing grade they got on the test. I can't go ask, will you please let them take it over? They were binge watching Netflix until 3 a.m. If they don't get all their materials that they need to do the assignment, to work, if I rescue them every time, then I'm training them that there are no consequences to their lack of discipline or their lack of focus. There have to be natural, normal consequences so that our kids mature. If you look back on your life, that's probably where a lot of your maturation happened. Is you figured out, I can't do that and get this result. So I've got to change this if I want a different result. I can't approach it this way And get the results that I want. So I've got to change something. The problem is, if I never experience the consequence, I'm never motivated to change. It's a part of growing up. It's a part of maturing. If I show up late to work for two weeks in a row, I'm probably not going to keep that job. Now that's a rough time to learn that, that principle. That's a hard way to learn consequences. So mom and dad, we got to play a role in helping them. One of the problems for Rebecca, I think, as, as sort of a compassionate, trying to relate to Rebecca, I, I think one of the problems was she loved Jacob so much, she, she, there was so much joy that she took in him, that there was this part of her that thought, well, the rules don't apply to him. I mean, I know the way this is supposed to work, and I know I really shouldn't deceive my husband. I shouldn't lie about this whole thing. I shouldn't take what belongs to Esau. But the rules don't really apply to Jacob because he's special. Can, can I just make all the parents mad this morning? Your kid's not special. I'm sorry. I'm, your kid's not special. Not in the sense of your child, by virtue of being your child, deserves special treatment that nobody else gets. Your child's not special. They're unique. How about that? They have unique gifts and personality, and you should champion that, and you should be the biggest cheerleader of that. You should encourage that. You should draw that out. They have unique abilities, and you should promote that. But they're not special in that you're Kids should get opportunities that nobody else gets. The rules don't apply to your kids because they're your kids. You're not helping them if that's your approach as a parent. You're, You're not helping them. Encourage who God made them to be. Expect, desire equal treatment, fair treatment, absolutely. All of our kids should have fair treatment and equal treatment. Treatment, but none of our kids are, are special 
in the sense that, well, the rules just don't apply to them. They, they should get away with things that other kids don't. They should get more chances than everybody else gets. At, at what point do they learn that I, I'm, I'm just like everybody else in the sense that I have to play by the same rules and the consequences apply to me just like they apply to everybody else? Now, thinking about all of that, thinking about this role that we play, thinking, thinking about the long-term consequences of our, of, of our role as parenting, it's really good to know that it doesn't all depend on me. Because it can feel that way sometimes. And, and, and I should take responsibility for me, and I should take responsibility for my parenting, but the truth is I'm never going to be a perfect parent, and you're not either. I'm not going to get it right 100% of the time, which is why I'm so glad it's not 100% up to me. The good news is God is at work in our children. God is at work in our parenting. God is at work in our family. When you read the rest of the story of Jacob and Esau... It does have a beautiful ending, and God's very much at work, and God takes all of these bad decisions and all of this mess, and He uses it ultimately for His glory and and for the nation and, and for what God's planning to do, and there's a lot of chaos in the middle. There's a lot of broken relationship. Rebecca's never going to see Jacob again after this story. It's like, it's it. Their relationship is going to be severed, this person that she loves so much. There are consequences, but when you read the whole story, you see, well, God's able to redeem. God's able to to correct. And the same is true for our families. Parenting is one of those tasks that we've been called to that's not hard. It's impossible. It is impossible to be a perfect parent. It is impossible to make the right call Every time. That's not absolving us of responsibility. That's saying it's so good to know that where I fail as a parent, God has strength and grace and mercy, and He's at work in my kids even more than I am. God is sovereign over my kids, in control of my kids, more than I've. God loves my kids more than I do, which I can't imagine, but He does. His grace and mercy and His hopes for my kids are greater than my hopes for them. We don't, we don't parent alone, we don't parent in our own strength. Hopefully, we parent by constantly saying, God, I need you. I I need you to give me wisdom. I need you to watch over my kids because I don't get it right all the time. We're not alone. We have a father. We have a parent in heaven who is at work along with us. We are not doing this by ourselves because we could not do this by ourselves. And if it's been a while since you've just honestly poured out your heart to our Heavenly Father to say, I need you. I'm, I'm trying to be a good parent, but I don't get it right all the time. I need you to help me be a good parent, and I need you to make up in my kids for the times that I'm not. I need you to make up for the times that I'm imperfect, because there's a lot of them. 
but they're yours before they're mine. So don't let them go. Let's pray. God, you've given us this impossible role. In our weaknesses, in our frailty and failures, none of us are perfect parents. God, we, we want to take principles from the Bible and warnings from the Bible and good examples and bad examples from the Bible. We, we want to try to live those out in our home and in our family. We won't get it right every time. We just won't. We need you. And so remind us that while we have this great task of shaping little lives, turning them into young, young adults who wisely choose and decide, young adults who hopefully follow after you, that we're not doing it alone. that all of our mistakes in the past they, they don't stop you from being at work in our kids if you're a parent or a grandparent an aunt, an uncle some, someone who has influence over teenagers or, or kids this would be a good time just, just for you to lift a prayer up to God just ask for his help again. Just thank him that in your imperfection, he still has plans and purposes for your kids. Ask his protection over your kids. He would guide their hearts and their thinking. That he would make up for whatever mistakes you have made or you're going to make. He would shape you into the parent that he's called you to be. God, help us. Help us raise the next generation to love you and know you and live for you. To be healthy and whole. To learn from their mistakes. To learn from our mistakes. To fall deeply in love with Jesus. To know that where their parents failed, there's grace. And where they've failed, there's grace. There's forgiveness. There's mercy in Jesus. In his name I pray.